Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? I'm great. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 121. That means it's chapter 20. See how I did that? You did the math right there in your head. I can tell. I if everyone's curious about it, I can see him. He's just counting on his fingers. Yeah, I, I have not yet in this podcast had to take off my socks and shoes in order to do the math. Anyway, this episode, uh, number 121, and next episode, we're going to be talking to magicians who are lucky enough to know Di Vernon, aka the professor. Di Vernon is referenced probably in every one of the Eli Marks books in one way or another. And uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, John, because you are the creator, but isn't uh, a chunk of Uncle Harry Di Vernon? Actually, no. Uh, it really is more Jay Marshall and Eugene Marshall. Berger. Um, yeah. However, that being said, Harry does reference Di Vernon quite a bit. And in one of the books, there's a little run where Harry says to Eli, well, you know what Di Vernon says? And Eli comes back with four or five famous Di Vernon quotes. And Harry goes, no, not that. No, not that. No, not that. And then he finally finds the right one. So he does use him as a touchstone throughout. But I guess uh, or something, for some reason, the, the, the everyman quality of a Jay Marshall mixed with Eugene Berger, that felt more like Harry to me. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I, I kind of forgot. Jay also has an, an encyclopedic knowledge of yep. uh, of where things came from and this and that, like Harry does. And so I, I just assume maybe there was a little divern and washed in there. But but Jay certainly had all those qualities as well. Anyway, today we get to talk to one of our favorite people in the whole world, John Carney, uh, who was a, a friend and uh, an informal student of Di Vernon. Jim, I know that Carney is one of your favorites. He really is. I mean, in terms of, of magicians, I would like to see on a regular basis. Carney is in the top three for me. I, I Wherever he is, I would go if it was anywhere close because he's, uh, I just think he's wonderful. I think his magic is as close to real magic. I, you stop thinking about, I wonder how he did that. And you just have that sort of, joy of wonder and discovery. And it's just so great because he's done so much work in getting rid of those moments where an audience might go, well, I don't know what he did, but I know exactly where he did it. But none of that exists. It's just pure delight in the outcome. And that I think is a special gift. And he talks about in the interview, uh, Di Vernon sending him back. No, 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 no. Until he has sort of worked it all out. And you can see it in his, in his real performance today. Yeah. And as we talked about last episode, he was one of the first magicians that I saw live, other than my friends who do magic uh, at a convention, a local convention you took me to. And I think you commented that uh, it's pretty high standard to hit if that's one of the first guys you see. Uh, and not only did I see him as John Carney, but I believe he also did uh, Mr. Misto there. If he didn't do it there, I know he did it the second time I saw him, which is a whole nother experience seeing that Mr. Misto character. Because it's so far from what John is as John is, is a thing. It's like this you know, a completely different take on everything, but just as enjoyable and entertaining. It's quite a dichotomy, really. It's his alter ego, but you can never see John. You don't see John in Mr. Misto. It's just you don't. Completely different thing. So, and folks, check out the show notes. We've got uh, clips of not only John performing, uh, but also John performing as Mr. Misto, so you can see the differences there. And you know, I, I saw at that very convention that you referenced it a few minutes ago. I attended John's sort of session, private session that you could sort of pay upgrade to, uh, and he had people come in there with a piece of magic that they were working on and you'd present the magic and then John would sort of, you know, help you critique it in a very kind, but super specific and super knowledgeable way to try to make that better. If you go to our YouTube channel, we have a short video of our friend Rob Zabrecki. who will be back in a couple episodes, but uh, Rob was uh, had the same thing with John Carney where he uh, would perform stuff for him and John would come back with, with that sort of advice. Was the you know, he's just carrying on exactly what he learned at the feet of Di Vernon. So when we talked to John, that was our very first question was, tell us who this guy was. Mm -hmm. 
So let's just dive in. Who was Di Vernon? Di Vernon was, uh, I, I would call him my mentor, though it wasn't like a formal relationship. Uh, but he was mentor to hundreds, thousands of magicians through his books. You know. He just uh, thought through things very thoroughly. Uh, I mean, he was very skillful, but he was smart, as smart as he was skillful. So, you know, good sleight of hand is in the planning stages. It's not like, all right, I'm already performing now. Let's see if I can get away with this. You know, really quickly move your hands and get away with it. It's nothing like that. It's like anticipating in advance the thought process, how what people are going to see, what they're going to be thinking, what they'll be suspicious of, and just one by one, just taking care of those things. And it's I, I call it a, a sophisticated simplicity because it's very people confuse simplicity with easy. If you say here's this is a very simple trick or I work this out so it's very simple people go oh so it doesn't take any skill learning time five minutes it's go no it's like it took a really long time to figure out how to eliminate all this fluff all this extraneous stuff and just do just do the 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 thing just make it as direct and effective as possible and then Vernon was great at that and subtleties and just uh the idea of being natural, you know, moving like a person wouldn't move, not like a magician would move or suspiciously, you know, people can read your body language. So being natural and using your head were the two things that he would repeat the most. And it's like the core, like, again, very simple ideas, but very difficult. And it takes many years of study to implement those ideas. You don't do the, the beginner, uh, the hack, they always know the easy way. They never know the simple way. Never. They always do have a lot of extra steps or, or do things awkwardly or something. And it's just like, it's, 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 it's a process of uh, sanding down rather than hacking away, you know, just sanding things away and gradually making things better over a period of time, thinking them through and not you know, always looking for a little, little improvements. And that's, that's the essence of Di Vernon. John, you know, so many magicians revere him. Um, how did you meet Di Vernon? How did, how did you make his acquaintance? Well, it was first through his books. I remember there was a, a they auctioned off some items uh, at my local magic club in Des Moines, Iowa. When I was like 14 or 15 years old. And there was a pamphlet there, uh, Select Secrets, which is a little small booklet that Vernon put out. Um, I'm not sure if it was the 40s or whatever. And then a copy of Stars and Magic. And both those are still a couple of my favorite books. And uh, that was my introduction to Di Vernon. I'd never heard of Di Vernon. There's just a book and it had some card tricks in it. So I grabbed it. And then I started hearing his name more and more and more. And I started buying more and more. Uh, Di Vernon books. And then the people that I met at Magic Inventions and the people that did the things that I thought were good raved about Di Vernon. So I got, I got to know more about this guy. So I started buying more Di Vernon books. And, and uh, that was my introduction to Di Vernon. But, you know, I didn't really know him really until I moved to California and uh, started hanging out at the Magic Castle. And, you know, and he, he meets a lot of people. So he's not going to remember my name, but he knew I was a friend of Fawcett Ross's. And he said, oh, you could tell that I was practicing and I thought about stuff. So uh, we, we built a rapport and we became pretty good friends. So you talked about him as a mentor. How, once you met him and, and hung out with him at the castle, in what ways did he mentor you? Uh, well, people assume it's like structured lessons. Like, all right, 10 o'clock Thursday, show up and I'm going to teach you this and then I'll teach you that. And, or it's the Kung Fu thing where he's whipping me, you know, when I make mistakes or slapping my hand or something. Nothing like that at all. It was just, we had a common interest. We love magic. And uh, I would, you know, show some tricks. And he would say, you know, oh, I don't like that. Or, you know, that looks a little natural. Or why don't you try it this way? And he would just, I would show him things and he would show me things. Just, just like you do with your friends. Uh, except this friend happened to be a brilliant guy, you know. And... Uh, 
And again, it's just shaving away or, or sanding away a little bit, just a little bit at a time, smoothing it off rather than hacking away things. And um, it, was, it was very informal and he might watch performance and that, uh, have some critique. But he did that with anybody. If, that he, if he thought you were earnest and you really practiced and you really thought about it and you put the time in, he would talk to anybody about magic. But some guys would walk up and go, what hand cream do I use? You know, what, what's the best kind of cards or what's the trick that, or the move that's going to put me over the top? Well, you know, it's a lifelong process. It's like it's an attitude you have of, you know, good enough is not good enough. And you, you just keep working at it. And, and, you know, now there's a little divernant in my brain uh, that's scolding me and saying, you know, you know, he, he wouldn't say that's terrible. Uh, you're, you're terrible. Just, he would say something like, he'd say, Johnny, I'm surprised at you. I'm su you're a very clever young man. Now, why would you do that? Think about it. You know, he, he would force you to do the work yourself. He wouldn't hand the answers to you. Uh, for instance, I was trying to learn uh, a move uh, in magic uh, uh, called the bottom palm and another one's called the diagonal palm shift. And I would do it and he'd go, no good, no good, no good. And you know, it would pass, it, it's, it was probably as good as 80% of the magicians out there. But he'd go, no good, no good. And I'd go, why? Think about it, think about it. And I would go home and I'd work on it. I'd go, ah, I got it now. I'd come back and I'd say, how about this? And he'd go, no good, no good. Why, well, tell me why. Well, think about it, think about it. So he, he, he taught me how to fish. He didn't just give me a fish. He taught me how to think about magic. So when I approach a problem, there's a little divergent in my head that's saying, no good, no good. You can do better than that. Think about it. Think about it. You know, you sort of touched on this, but I'm wondering, is there, is there anything you could say about what made him special in, in the ranks of, of working magicians? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't consider him like a, a fantastically successful magician making lots of money and traveling around and world famous and that kind of a thing. But he did, he, he was just total success at what he did. And the thing that distinguished him is something I learned from him. It's a conversational style. Most magicians, when they perform as soon, you know, they talk one way, like I'm talking to you right now and say, yeah. And, oh, would you like to see a trick? Okay. And then they, <clears throat> On a recent trip to China, I had one, two, three balls, and I counted one, two, three balls. And, and now you're, it's like procedure and describing what you're doing. It's no longer conversation. And it makes people focus on your hands and your actions instead of loosening up and letting go and letting the guard down and suspending their disbelief and just enjoying what you're doing. So it's not only good misdirection, but it's a way of connecting with people directly as opposed to performing at them. You're, you're performing for them. You're saying, hey, Bob, what's your name, Bob? Oh, what do you do? Oh, yeah, I had a job like that. And you, know, you probably, this would relate to you. If you, here, pick a car. Let's say that's somebody in your, you're in a conversation. It's not, you're not an exhibition. You're, you're performing, you're not exhibiting. You're interacting with people. It's, it's connecting with people. And um, I don't know, just try to stay loose, stay, stay in the moment. It's like a comic, you know, if a comic gets up and just goes, two guys walk into a bar and one guy says the other, he goes, what? Are you? And then a horse showed up. It's a joke. But the comics today come out and they go, oh, where, what, so what's going on? Oh, you know, I was just down at the thing. That's a more fun joke to say, you know, I was in this place and I talking to this guy and the guy's a mechanic and he's fixing my car. And you start the joke like that instead of going, guy walks into a mechanic and the mechanic says, hey, what do you, you know, now it's like a joke. But yeah. this conversational style draws people in because it's like, it's like you're talking to them. And, and I even try to do that visually connect with people so I can have a completely black, blackened out theater because the lights are in my eyes and it's a big theater and I can't see any people at all. But I move my head up and to the right and up and to the left and down to the center and down to the lower. And I just keep talking as I and different and I pretend that I see somebody and I'll gesture to them like like I can see them and I can't see anybody. I just see blackness. 
but somebody will see that and go, oh, what? oh, hey, she's looking right at me. So you're looking in that area. But if you don't have that connection, either with just being relaxed and being natural, and you don't look at people, then then you're like, you're a, a monkey in the zoo. People are looking at you. They're not interacting with you. What do you think his influence uh, on uh, maybe magicians who didn't have the uh, a chance to hang with him the way you did so that he's in their heads. What, what's his influence today on, on magic? Well, you know, I, I, I can't tell with younger people, you know, cause I think they, they probably don't know who a lot of them don't know who he is or just barely know who he is. You know, I, I, I hope people continue to, to look toward him for those kind of ideas. I, I, I perpetuate those ideas when I write or I lecture, or I talk about, magic i perpetuate those ideas i can't talk about magic without talking about divernant because it's like you know such a big part of uh, my influence i i think he has a great influence uh, still if you just start reading divernant ideas uh, you know divernant tricks descriptions you'll see his thinking and you want that's what you really want to learn is the thinking i don't want to learn every trick that he ever did but by studying those different moves and those different routines that he did and the thinking behind them. It's like, Oh, I can apply that thinking to this. And oh, I can apply it to that. Oh, that's what, Oh, this would be perfect here. Now you're, you're using that information to forward your, your own progress. You know, you're not just, not just learning tricks. You know, there's, you know, there's a consumer culture and there's a collector's culture out there where it's all about getting the latest product, getting the latest download, knowing the latest secret, having the latest prop. And it's like collecting. It's collecting secrets and collecting props. And it's not about just, just focus on a few things and try to make them better. You know, oh, it's good enough. It's good enough. It always passes. No, it's not good enough. It's like, why would you take up painting and not try to make it look, not have a vision, not trying to make it look like the bowl of fruit why would you just paint a couple circles and then feel like you're done it's like the whole point is to to express yourself and to learn something and to, to grow and uh, expand your mind and your consciousness a little bit and it, it doesn't matter what you're doing whether it's card tricks or painting or you know flower arranging or or you know, whatever you, you know just it's an expression so you know why not do it better, you know, and you don't have to be the best in the world. That's not my goal to be the best in the world. And it shouldn't be anybody else's. I think your goal should be, it'd be great if I was better today than I was yesterday, because I know magicians that have been it for 60, 70 years and they're, they're no better than they were in the beginning because all they did was collect things. They collected secrets and things. So they were into obtaining secrets and props and things but they never try to just polish a few things and make those things uh, effective. You know, it's better to do a few things really well, really thought out, really entertaining, really deceptive and invisible and, and uh, all that than to do a thousand tricks mediocre. You're not going to do a thousand tricks for people. If you do four or five tricks for people and they're fantastic and they're entertaining, what do you need that many more tricks for? You know, it's like, uh, um, but you know, it's fun. It's fun to learn all those things. I, I do it too, but you know, find a few things, have a working repertoire, develop a working repertoire where you, those things are angle proof. They're entertaining. They're deceptive. You practice them on a regular basis. You don't practice and then just stop practicing them. You know, say, well, how could I, you know, it's, it looks a little funny when I do that. How do I, how can I change that? Oh, what if I did this? You know, just over a period of time, you just sand it away until it's smoother. And uh, to me, that's the fun of it. If I'm not thinking about magic, it's, it's not, it's not really fun anymore. You know, it's, uh, uh, then you're just going through the motions or, you know, you're, you have a music box and you're turning a crank, you know, it's, uh, it's fun to discover those things and, uh, and see the, the fruit of your labor, your thinking. You know, this comes up again and again, this idea of honing something and just working on it, um, polishing it. That is his gift, I think. Yeah. Who was it who said the problem with magicians is they start? 
they stop thinking too soon. And uh, he doesn't do that. Uh, he keeps thinking and he keeps thinking and he keeps thinking. You can really see the results in his work. And, you know, he also said, which something that struck me in the re-listen was the idea of having a repertoire of tricks that you have got to this level where you, you know, you may only need 10 or 15 tricks max if you've got them to the level that John Carney has moved his magic. You might never need more than that, but man, it's a lifetime of work getting to that point. Yeah, he's an inspiration. Uh, as I mentioned before the interview, uh, if you go to the YouTube channel, you can listen to Rob Zarecki talking about his mentoring experience. I, I feel very lucky that I got to spend some time with him in that way. And I think any magician who goes into uh, that experience with John, uh, it's it's like being mentored by Di Vernon, but in a much kinder gentler way. Yeah. Having never been mentored by Di Vernon, I, I, if it's coming through John, you know, it's going to be kind, but so smart. Yeah. Just fantastic. That's John Carney. Next episode, we'll have Steve Spill to give his impression of his time with Di Vernon. He literally grew up starting as a teenager, hanging around the Magic Castle, and he has his own take on the professor. But let's get down to the reason we're actually here, which is uh, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up the ambitious card. Uh, last time we heard chapter 19, uh, we found out who the murderer was. And uh, as as the chapter ended, Pete put them into the, the darkest part of the cave and locked the door behind him. And that takes us right into chapter 20. Bum, bum, the ambitious card and Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 20. We stood together in silence for what felt like a long time. The noise the door had made while closing had the sound of real finality to it, like it was sealed tight. I listened closely, but couldn't hear any noise from the room on the other side of the door. There was no air movement where we were standing. The only sound was our breathing. Perhaps this is the wrong time to bring this up, I finally said. But I think your divorce may not be as amicable as you thought. Megan sighed long and hard. The little bastard. Have I ever mentioned that he has a small penis? Well, he does. Tiny little thing. Almost laughable. There was another long silence in the dark. Thanks for sharing. Feel better? Not a lot, she said. And then she sighed. I spent a lot of time here with my cousins when I was little. I hate to think that this will spoil all my great memories of these caves. Hey, if we walk out of here with memories of any kind, we can consider ourselves lucky. I squeezed her hand gently, and then she returned the gesture. A thought occurred to me. When you say a lot of time, do you mean in here or in the public spaces on the other side of that locked door? Both, really. Back in those days, it wasn't locked up like this. We used to play hide-and-seek in all the caves. Of course, that was before the outside entrances were sealed up. But yeah, we'd run through here for hours on Saturday afternoons with flashlights. Doesn't seem like a very safe activity for kids, I considered. Well, there were a lot of us, so I guess the grown-ups figured that if we lost one or two, it didn't really matter. Having just come from performing at a kid's birthday party, I can fully endorse that point of view. Another pause, and then I felt Megan lean into me. I hugged her and held her close. I don't want to die in here, she said quietly. Ditto, I said, kissing the top of her head. So, let's see what we can do to ruin Pete's day. I stepped back and gave the locked door a useless thump with my fist, and then turned back toward Megan. You know your way around here. They couldn't have boarded up all the entrances. The job was performed by city workers, after all. They're not known for their work ethic. There must be at least one way out of here. I could hear her sniffle. Maybe, she said. But how do we find it in the dark before the carbon monoxide gets us? A thought occurred to me. You know, we might not be completely screwed, I said. I quickly searched through my pockets. My iPhone has a flashlight app on it. It doesn't throw off a lot of light, but it would be better than nothing. I came up empty-handed, and then I remembered when I had last used my phone. Of course, the phone would be more helpful to us right now if it weren't sitting on the front seat of my car. 
So I guess we are completely screwed, I added. Well, it was a good idea while it lasted, Megan said. I patted my pockets one last time to make sure, and then reached again into the inside pocket on my sport coat. However, I said, realizing what I had stashed away there, I do have the ability to make it light, if only for a couple of seconds at a time. I stepped toward what I thought must be the center of the pitch-black room. Turn away from me and open your eyes. There's going to be a short flash of light, so you need to look around and gather as much information as you can in just a second or so. I took one of the pieces of flash paper from my pocket, attached the small igniter to my finger, and set it off. There was a bright burst, and for just an instant, the cave was illuminated, and then just as quickly we were thrown back into the thick darkness. Okay, I remember this room, Megan said. There are two corridors straight ahead of us. The one on the right is a dead end. My older cousin used to go in there and make out with her boyfriend. He was gross. Big guy, football player. Cute, but really dumb, which was the type she always went for. She's married three just like him. That's great, Megan, I said softly, but I think we need to focus. Right, she said, focus. We don't want the one on the right. It's the one on the left that branches off into the corridors. Then let's make our way down the left corridor. With one hand behind me holding Megan's hand, and one ahead of me to prevent us from walking into a stalactite, or stalagmite, or whichever it is that hangs from the ceiling, we slowly made our way toward the left corridor. Once we were safely through the small archway, I gave Megan a warning and then ignited another piece of flash paper. This new small room lit up briefly, and I could see Megan's face for an instant as her eyes scanned the space. Okay, I know where we are. There's a crawl space over to our right. It's kind of tight, but once through it, We'll have a lot more options. We moved toward it together, getting down on our knees and feeling the dimensions of the opening in the rough wall. It didn't feel very big. Do you want me to go first? I asked. It's not so much that I want you to go first as it is that I would prefer that I go second. Oddly enough, I completely understand, I said. I took a deep breath and bent down, preparing to crawl through the passage. Then I sat up again unable to force myself to wiggle into that small opening. I don't know why this is so hard, I said. I'm only going from one really dark place into another really dark place. Sort of the story of my life, really. I could hear Megan chuckling behind me. That's what we in the business would call a polite laugh, I said. No, it was funny, Megan said. I'm just worried that we're using up too much oxygen talking. Do you know the symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning? I feel like I'm starting to get a little lightheaded. How can you tell? I made a quick rimshot sound effect. Again, funny, but do we really want to waste the oxygen? You're probably right. I'll do my best to keep the graveyard humor to a minimum, I said. Must be the way that I cope with stress. Although, to be honest, I've never reacted this way in the past. Eli, you're still talking, she said patiently. Yes, I agree, I said. But as to your earlier question about the symptoms, in a situation with a really heavy concentration of carbon monoxide, I don't think there really are any symptoms. I think you just pass out. Then shut up and start crawling. I heeded her advice and bent down, pulling myself into the small space. Megan had described the passageway as kind of tight, and if that was her recollection of it as a child, I look forward to hearing how she described it as an adult. At its narrowest point, it felt like it was about a half inch wider than my shoulders and just exactly the size of the height of my horizontal body. And since I couldn't see anything ahead of me, I had no sense of how long I would be stuck in this confined space. I was truly unnerved, and I could feel myself begin to sweat, the moisture rolling off my neck and down my shoulders, making me shiver. I dragged myself along, silently cursing the small helium tank strapped to my lower back, which dug deeply into me at a couple of really tight points in the journey. I began to wish that I had taken it off back at the car. And then, after what felt like a long trek but was probably only about eight feet, the passageway opened into a larger black space. I pulled myself out, not wanting to get too far into the darkness, 
but still wanting to put some distance between myself and the claustrophobic passageway. It's all clear, I called into the hole. Megan didn't respond, but I could hear her struggling to pull herself through. Here's my hand, I said, groping in the dark. Our hands found each other, and by counterbalancing my weight against hers, I was able to provide some traction to get her out of the tight channel and into this new, unknown space. We sat for a moment, catching our collective breath, leaning against each other and the rough wall behind us. There used to be a hole leading to the outside in this chamber, Megan said finally as she caught her breath. It should be over to the right, but since we can't see the outside right now, I suspect that they sealed it up. Let's see what we can see, I said. Here comes the flash. I ignited another sheet of flash paper, and for just an instant, we got a quick snapshot of where we had landed. The headroom was a lot lower than the last chamber, maybe four feet at the highest point. There were two passages out, both to the left of where we were sitting, and a large gray spot on the wall on the right. How many of those flash paper things have you got left? Megan asked. I didn't count them, but whatever the number is, I'd be willing to bet you that it will be one or two short of what we actually need. Those were the numbers I was thinking of, too, she agreed. So, the exit you mentioned? It's that gray spot on the wall. I was right. Looks like they filled it in. Let me check. I crawled across the bumpy ground to the wall on the right and felt along the uneven surface. The texture of the wall changed to something much smoother for a couple of feet, and then back to the rough texture. Hard to say for sure, I said, but I'm guessing they cemented this one shut. We're not getting out here. Ready to press on? She didn't answer me, and after a moment, I heard a whimper that indicated she was crying. I crawled back through the dark until I found her. We hugged awkwardly. She buried her face into my chest. I really, really hate him, she said. I'm just kicking myself for being so nice to him about the divorce. Well, with any luck... In an hour or so, you can stop kicking yourself and start kicking him. And when you're done, I got a couple places I'd like to kick him as well. But they sealed up the exits, she said, trying to control her crying and coming up short. All of them. Maybe, but maybe not. So we got to keep moving. We have two options ahead of us. Do you remember which one is which? She sighed, and it sounded like she was wiping her nose on her sleeve. Hey! What are you doing? That's my sleeve, I said in mock horror, which made her laugh. She sniffled again, and I could sense that she was done crying, at least for the time being. Okay, we saw two quarters in here, correct, she said, and then the filled-in hole as well. That's right, the corridors are to our left, the filled-in spot is to our right. She took a deep breath. Both corridors are good, but I think the one on the far left has more exit options. Then I vote that we take the one on the far left. Follow me. I started to crawl in the direction of the opening. I heard Megan start to move behind me, and then she stopped. Eli, she said quietly, I'm really starting to feel lightheaded. Now that she mentioned it, so was I, although I was unwilling to admit it just yet. Really? I asked. How bad? It's hard to tell, she said. Being in the dark makes everything disorienting, but something's going on, that's for sure. I had made it across the small cavern and found the space that I believed was the corridor on the far left. I leaned back against the rough wall and felt an immediate sharp pain in my back, which made me call out. What is it? Megan said, a hint of panic in her voice. It's this stupid thing, I said. For the kids' show, I keep jabbing myself in the back with it. I took off my jacket and began to unstrap the tank when an idea occurred to me. You know, I continued as I removed the tank and then reconnected the long tube and the nozzle. We could actually use this thing. What thing? Megan asked from across the small space. Can we use it to punch through the concrete they used to seal up the exit? No, I said as I crawled back to her. I think we can use it to buy ourselves some time. It's a mixture of helium and oxygen that I use in the act. As luck would have it, though, I didn't use much of it today. Normally, after a typical show, it would be completely empty. And we can breathe it? I don't see why not. 
There's really only one side effect. It's carcinogenic? No, I explained. It's cartoonogenic. What's that mean? It will make us sound like cartoon characters. You know that high-pitched voice you get when you suck the helium out of a balloon? No, I've never done that. This stunned me into momentary silence. Never? Even as a kid? Not that I recall. Well, you're in for a treat, I said, handing her the nozzle. Place this in your mouth and press down on this switch. That will start the flow of air, then just breathe in. She took the device from my hand, and a moment later, I heard the telltale hiss of gas as it flowed out of the tube. I could hear her breathing deeply for a few seconds, and then the hissing stopped. How did it work? I asked. I'm not sure, she said in a high, squeaky voice. It was as if I had suddenly been joined in the cave by Minnie Mouse. Let me try it again. She took another hit off the nozzle. That feels better, she said, her voice a notch higher now, almost up to Betty Boop range. You should have some too, she added in her new squeaky voice as she placed the nozzle in my hand. I put the nozzle in my mouth and hit the release button, which immediately filled my mouth with the gas. I tried to breathe it in, but the first pass went down wrong and I started coughing. This was like the first time I tried a cigarette, I said. I tried it again, and this time was able to pull the air down into my lungs. I breathed out and took another hit, and then one more. I'm not sure if it was a placebo effect, but my head did feel a bit clearer. I think it's working, I said, sounding very much like Alvin or one of the other lesser-known chipmunks. I feel a little better. The sound of my voice produced a huge laugh from Megan. You sound ridiculous, she said in her new falsetto, in between bursts of laughter. Well, you've lost your Kathleen Turner quality as well, I said. Now it's like being stuck in a cave with Cindy Lauper. Or the Munchkins, she added. This last example sparked a thought. You know, I said, Franny told me that she saw something in my future that involved the dark and munchkins. And here we are. Isn't that weird? Did she say how you got out of it? That didn't come up. I handed her the nozzle and waited while she took another hit. She handed it back, and I filled my lungs to capacity. We sat for a moment in silence, knowing that the next person to speak would restart the wave of laughter. Finally, I spoke. We should keep moving, I said trying to deepen my voice and coming up short. Megan stifled a laugh. Yes, you're right, she finally said. Let's see if we can find the yellow brick road out of here. After several minutes of slowly making our way through the various sized caverns, we fell into a sort of routine. We'd crawl into a new cavern, take a couple hits off the tank, use one of the diminishing sheets of flash paper to determine our next step, and then move on. Then, rinse and repeat, as the saying goes. I had to hand it to the men and women of the St. Paul Parks Department. So far, they had done a very thorough job of blocking each of the potential exits we had come across. Any image I'd had in my mind of lazy, indolent public works employees had been completely shattered. Those guys were good, and even though it might end up killing me, in a way, I grudgingly admired their determination to find and plug every damned hole in the bluffs from Wabashaw Avenue all the way down to the Sibley Memorial Highway. It was evident that at some point in the past, someone had taken this job very seriously. It was hard to keep track of time in the dark, but after traversing several small and medium-sized caverns, I guessed that nearly an hour had gone by. As we moved forward, Megan's memory of the layout of the caves had started to become less precise. I didn't blame her. It had been over 20 years since she'd played hide-and-seek in this space, and we'd gone deeper and farther than the areas she had previously played in. However, she wasn't looking at it that way, and her level of frustration grew with each new, unfamiliar cavern. Unfortunately, I was unable to take her self-recriminations seriously, because the matter she got at herself, the more she sounded like Donald Duck in the midst of a bout of cartoon road rage. And of course, 
My laughing only made things worse. Shut up, she snarled at me after one particularly hilarious outburst. It's not funny. We're going to die in here. That may well be, I said, my voice just a tad lower than hers. But we'll die laughing. And it's all my fault, she continued. If only I'd let Pete sell the corner when he first suggested it, nobody would have died. Nothing bad would have happened. We wouldn't be stuck here. Megan, I don't think your ex-husband's murderous tendencies really fall under the heading of your fault, I suggested. You're the victim here, and Pete is the bad guy, and you didn't do anything wrong. Here's what you should do, I said, moving into therapist mode. Instead of beating yourself up, you should push that energy outward and use it to get out of here and bring that little bastard to justice. I paused for a moment, waiting for a response. Megan burst out laughing. Maybe what you're saying makes sense, but there's no way I can take advice from anyone who sounds like that, she spit out between peals of laughter. You sound absurd. So do you. This led to more laughter, followed by another couple hits off the nozzle. The tank was feeling considerably lighter, but I didn't think this was the ideal time to mention it. Are you ready to move on? I asked. I think so. I ignited another sheet of flash paper, revealing that we were in a pretty large cavern. In the brief burst of light, I could see at least three corridors leading out of it. Which one looks good to you? I asked. Megan responded with a yelp of surprise. What was that? she cried, and even though her voice was ridiculously high and squeaky, I could hear real terror in it. What happened? Something just touched my head, she said, still panicked. I heard the sound of her tossling her hair frantically. What was it? It wasn't me. Let's take another look. I ignited another sheet of flash paper. The room was too large to really see everything in that quick flash, but the burst of light triggered a response from somewhere above us deep in the murk. I could hear the distinctive, unsettling rustle of wings. I think we've got bats, I whispered. Oh, crap, she replied, not even trying to keep her voice down. No, I assured her, bats are good. I hate bats and I don't want to hear that shit about how they eat mosquitoes. Right now, I don't care. I hate them. I'm not talking about mosquitoes. If we've got bats, that means there must be a way out somewhere around here. How do we know, she said, calming a bit. I mean, maybe they just live in here all the time. Well, I'm no bat expert, I said, but I think bats have to go out every once in a while to get things, like food. That's the good news. What's the bad news? The bad news is that we won't be able to see what direction they're going when they go. Now that I think of it, I believe bats can get out of a place through a hole about the size of a quarter, which wouldn't be much help for us. So, tell me again, how is this a good thing? Well, I said, as a new thought occurred to me, if it's safe for them to breathe in here, it's probably safe for us. A doubly important point, I realized, as the helium tank was feeling dangerously close to empty. We just need to see where they go when they leave and find a way to follow them. When do they typically go out? I paused, wondering at what point I had suddenly become the de facto bat expert. They head out at night, if you can believe all the old horror films, or maybe dusk. And when is that? I'd gotten so used to her high-pitched voice that it no longer struck me as odd. I'm not sure. It should be soon, though, I said. It gets dark pretty early now. As if they heard and understood me, there was more rustling above us. It was quiet for a moment, and then it started again. The sound was moving away from us. I pulled out my dwindling stack of flash paper. I ran the pieces through my fingertips it felt like I had maybe three left. The noise continued above us. I think the bats are moving. I'm going to set off another flash. Watch and see if you can tell where they're headed. I ignited the sheet as I tossed it in the air in front of us. In the brief light, I thought I detected shadows moving. I saw movement toward the opening on the far left, I said. 
How about you? I'm sorry. When I see bats, I shut my eyes, she said. It's a primal kind of thing. Actually, I don't blame you, I said, but I think the left corridor is the one we should head down. With the bats? After the bats. Or as the French might say, après les bats. So you're promising me that there will be no bats in the corridor when we go through it? Absolutely, I lied. We're following them. At a distance. Okay, then. We groped our way through the blackness across the cavern until we located the far wall, which I discovered first with my forehead and then, less painfully, with my hand. I felt around the wall until I found the opening to the passageway. We're going to have to duck down to get through here, I said, but at least we won't have to crawl. I went through first and could hear Megan moving into the space behind me. The cramped corridor got even skinnier for a few feet, requiring us to turn sideways in order to keep moving. I began to fear that it would get narrower and narrower, forcing us to retrace our steps, and then it suddenly became wider, and I stopped worrying about that. That's when they came. First I heard the hum of wings, which resembled the noise of static on a radio, but the acoustics in the passage were such that I couldn't really place where the sound was coming from. And then suddenly, the bats arrived, and it didn't really matter anymore. They hit us from behind like a cold breeze, hundreds of them, bouncing off our bodies like pinballs. Apparently, we were standing between the furry little winged bastards and their night on the town, and they were determined to get around us by any means available. They fluttered between our legs, under our arms, past our ears and eyes, slapping us in our faces with their cold, webby wings. I've never walked through a car wash, but I think that's the closest thing to what we experienced, except that we weren't being sprayed with water. Water would have been great, a welcome treat, but that's not what the bats were carrying. They were flying and flapping and peeing, and Megan and I were getting the works, the deluxe superwash. Only a couple dollars more, but absolutely worth it. Did I mention that Megan screamed continuously through all of this? I don't know how that slipped my mind. Yes, she freaked out completely, and I really didn't blame her, except that the majority of her screaming was done directly into my right ear. She clung to my arm like a deer tick and dug her nails so far into my skin that I think her fingers actually met halfway through my limb. And then, as quickly as they had descended on us, they were gone. It was quiet again, with only the echo of Megan's screams reverberating in the cavern. She still clung tightly to me, but I could feel her muscles relax just a bit, and her breathing slowed. What's that smell? she asked, her voice still carrying a trace of Betty Boop in it. You don't want to know, I said, using my free sleeve to wipe my eyes. Oh, yuck, she said, after it finally dawned on her, and I could feel her body shudder. That's just gross. Well, what do you expect? You scared them. I scared them. How do you figure? I'm sure they come through this passage all the time and didn't expect to run into anyone. Don't tell me you're taking the bat side, she said, her voice still high, but more from incredulity than helium. I'm neutral on the subject, I finally said. I'm the Switzerland of bats and bat guano. Oh, bats. Icky, icky bats. I don't oh. have any problem with bats. It's snakes for me. I can live with a bat. I can live with a mouse. If you show me a snake, I'm gone. I'm just gone. You really I are Indiana Jones, aren't you? You know, I had it long before Indiana Jones had it. He came out in the 80s. I was born in the 60s. And that we had a, my mother bought one of those Time Life series of, of, on nature and we'd get a book a month. And there was a whole chunk of stuff on like grizzly bears and deer and uh, raccoons. But then there was a chunk of that book that was about snakes. And I made her take a paper clip and clip that together. So, so that I didn't have to even look at the picture of it. So it, it, I could just, you know, go right by it. I just, I don't know what there is about them, but I cannot abide them. 
So I, bats, you know, I won't seek them out, but if I find them, I'm not going to freak out. A snake, I'm done. I'm gone. I can't talk about it. All right, listeners, everybody just file that away and use it uh, to the best of your advantage uh, when you can. You know, I was thinking when we were re-listening to the chapter here that there was a point in recording the audiobook version of it when Eli and Megan are uh, inhaling the oxygen-helium combination. Jim, you and I discussed, boy, we could certainly, I could certainly run this through a filter and, and uh, have a high squeaky voice for everything uh, that follows. And I think wiser heads prevailed. Uh, I'm glad we did. Wiser heads, do you mean me? Um, you were uh, much more against it than I was. But anyway, we decided against it. And um, I'm glad we didn't do the cartoon voices. I know that I did get an email from a reader once, uh, an audiobook listener, who said, I was disappointed that the voices didn't get higher there. It's like, well, yeah, that's a slippery slope, and I'm glad we didn't go down it. You know what I'm willing to do? What? If there are people that want to hear that, this past chapter with the high squeaky helium voices, I am willing to do not an alteration with some sort of computer-generated effect, but rather... I'll simply read that chapter and I'll inhale the helium, but we'd have to do it live. I'm going Thank to you it. for offering to do that, Jim. I'll let you know. I'm going to get helium it. right now. <laughs> right. As, soon as, I, soon as we're done, I'm going to the helium store. Anyway, we've, we've gone very far afield. I think that uh, kind of wraps up this particular episode. Uh, we've got uh, Steve Spill coming next episode, then two more episodes, and then we're done with season one, and we'll begin season two, in which we'll look at the bullet catch. Uh, we've got some good people coming up on that one, don't we? We really do, yeah. Uh, th- th- they've all been great, but Stan Allen is in that ep- that season, David Parr, Jonathan Levitt, Harrison Greenbaum. <laughs> Uh, Kayla Drescher, John Armstrong. Uh, it just goes on and on. It's going to be a really fun season. So if you haven't subscribed, why haven't you? Go ahead and click the button and subscribe and make sure you don't miss an episode of the rest of season one or all of season two. And if you're enjoying this, uh, a review really helps us. So if you're enjoying the podcast and, and listening to the chapters, but also the interviews, uh, give us a quick review, would you? Because uh, it does help us get this podcast to other people like you who may say, oh, this is great. Or I assume you're saying it's great. You know what I'm saying? Just leave us a review because it's going to help us get to other people who may like the show. Or not. But that's not. fantastic. All matter. right. You know, I don't mind. And the I, uh, next episode on helium, all the entire episode. So look forward to that, folks. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.